We've been asked to mark song number 50, and certainly thankful are we to be able to do that and to devote the next few moments after singing these powerful and engaging songs about the nature of heaven, the power of the gospel, and the wonderful message of truth. I hope that you have your Bible still open to Revelation 13:8, and we'll use that really as a springboard for many of the considerations and features of our lesson this morning, the blood of Christ. I gave that the, as the title of the lesson, and all throughout the course of our study this morning, I'd like for us to reflect on the blood of Christ. This next slide is an introductory one, and as I hope you can see, we may well take a different approach to studying about the blood this morning, but I hope it'll be meaningful. I hope it'll be very engaging for each of us, and certainly something that can motivate us to be faithful, to appreciate what Jesus did for us. Isn't it interesting as you give thought about the word blood? Not surprisingly, that word occurs over 460 times in the Bible. Over and over again, both Old and New Testament, there's references to blood. Now, you and I know well from a medical perspective how important it is, any of us, when we puncture our skin in some way, our blood will flow forth. As it does, we're aware that that blood has some amazing characteristics. Were you aware of the fact that blood is not something you can manufacture? You know, we in the human family can make a lot of things. You can make a stone look like a diamond. And there are a lot of artificial diamonds you can go and buy. And there are many other things that can be fashioned and made. But you know, and I know as well, with all the technology that we have and all the capability that is ours, we cannot manufacture blood. The only thing that can make it is the human body. That's why you have to have blood donations and things like that. You need people to donate it because there's no machine that can make it. And yet in light of all of those considerations of blood, think about just a few of the appearances in the Word of God. It is true on many occasions, references to blood will refer to the blood of an animal. As for instance is the case in Exodus 29:16. There it was the case the priest was supposed to take the blood of an animal and sprinkle it around the altar. Now certainly that wasn't human blood, it was animal blood. But on the other occasion, you find great teaching sometimes about blood. How often in the Old Testament was it said, His blood shall be upon him. So when someone did something that violated God's will, that person is going to have to pay for the choice they made. His blood will be on him. I would say that all of that just prepares us in one way or another for the extended discussion of the blood of Jesus. And that we shall do for the remainder of our lesson today. The blood of Christ is the pivotal discussion of blood in all the Bible. I hope that you and I can look at it through several different lenses, through several different particulars. The first one is this one. I'm going to use a picture from time to time throughout the lesson to direct our attention, to think about the urgency, the greatness, and the absolute magnitude of the blood of Christ. As you can see here, a quotation is made, without the shedding of blood is no remission, and as often as that blood was shed in the Old Testament, we're going to learn something vital about the nature of it. And our first consideration is this. Through the lens of prophecy... What could be said about the blood of Jesus? 
as we develop this thought over the next few moments, and it'll be a relatively brief consideration, but how amazing, how meaningful it is. Let's begin like this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, by inspiration, Paul on that occasion said that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Aren't you impressed with the following fact? Over a thousand years before Jesus died, Old Testament prophets, they laid out in great detail the reality of how it was that that was going to be. Now you and I, as we think down the stream of time a a thousand years from now, could you detail how some particular person is going to die? There may well be means of death by that time that are not even in existence yet. Would you ponder this? Jesus died by crucifixion. The Roman Empire had not yet come into its ascendancy at the time David wrote Psalm 22. There was no such thing known as crucifixion. And yet the psalmist was able to write that it was by that means, it was by being pierced that Jesus, in fact, the Messiah, would give His life and shed His blood. May we all be impressed then that through the consideration of prophecy, we can't help but be impressed with that development in the Old Testament. Can I call to your attention texts like Isaiah 53, verse 7. As a sheep led dumb to the slaughterer, did you notice the Lord would be slaughtered? He wouldn't die just of old age. Jesus was not merely going to die just by virtue of ultimate failure of the physical body. He was to be slaughtered. That's what the writer in Isaiah pointed out. To that might we add Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. There it was said that they pierced my hands and my feet. Would you again be impressed? The Romans had not yet developed crucifixion. And yet David wrote about it a thousand years before Jesus was born. We can't help but be impressed with the nature of those developments and the claims that were made. Let's add another one. In Zechariah 12, verses 10 and following, later the prophet Zechariah affirmed that he was to be pierced, that one that was the Messiah. To all of those things, we can add the following observations. Wasn't it true in Leviticus 17 that there Moses by inspiration said, "...the life is in the blood." That's one of the things that makes our appreciation of blood so terribly special. We know about lots of fluids upon the planet earth, and yet nothing is like blood. It is able to, in fact, take the characteristic nature of oxygen from the lungs and take that throughout the body. And furthermore, it is able to take the waste products of the cells to the kidneys, and there, of course, it is taken out of the body. What blood can do is so remarkable. No wonder God through Moses said the life is in the blood. Now you and I know the application of that spiritually is very profound. Consider the following with me in Isaiah 53, 12, closing verse to that chapter. The suffering servant, it was there said relative to his blood and relative to the nature of the life in the blood. This one was to shed his blood. May you and I never forget, Jesus couldn't just have died of old age. That wouldn't have been a sufficient matter. It was necessary for blood. Let's close that slide with this. The very words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 
Didn't the Lord Himself say hours prior to His crucifixion? In that famous passage, verse 20, chapter 26, verse 28 of Matthew, it was there that the following statement is made. This blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The Lord made reference then to His own blood, recognizing the great role that it was to play. Let's close that slide then and notice that New Testament you and I cherish is said to be in His blood. One more time, that same picture. I hope it's etched in our thinking that through the lens of prophecy may we appreciate without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now for the next lens. The lens that I'll call a type, T-Y-P-E. Many times in the Old Testament a given event happened and it foreshadowed an event that was to happen much, much later. Many times concerning Jesus that developed. Could I direct your attention to Exodus chapters 12 and 13? It was on that occasion the following development happened. The children of Israel had been led out of Egypt, or at least they were in the process of it. They were in a very difficult position. They were slaves, of course, to the Egyptians. And yet, one by one, a number of plagues had been brought upon them. And ultimately, we come to plague number 10. God said, the firstborn in every house in which there's no blood on the doorpost will die. The commandment was this. You take a lamb on the tenth day of the month. You take it up and keep it for four days. On the fourteenth day at even, you kill it. You take of its blood and you put it upon the lintel and the doorpost. That's the two side posts and on the top. And God said this. You stay in the house where you've put the blood on the doorpost. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's no question that that rings with the nature of Christ. The necessity there in regard to blood, when I see it, I'll pass over you. There was to be death in every house where there wasn't blood on the doorpost. There was separation from the nature of goodness and provision of God. There was death. And death rang throughout the nation of Egypt that night. But yet for every house where there was blood on the doorpost, God had passed over them. They enjoyed life. Is it any different today? You and I need to be such that our lives are bounded by the blood of Christ and God still in many ways says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Our sins are forgiven. We enjoy redemption and sanctification. We enjoy connection with God. But where there is not that blood, there is death. Spiritual death. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 2 verse 1, You are dead in your sins and trespasses. And yet in verses 4 and following, when the blood of Christ is referenced and mentioned, those that are plunged beneath it and those who use it to forgive their sins, they have life. May I say in type, it is the same as it was then. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, it is there said Jesus is, did you notice, is our Passover. In the same way they use that lamb and that blood such that they were in fact 
not those that suffered under that uh, nature of death. So too, Jesus is our Passover. Let's close that slide with this observation. May I suggest one more thing that we shouldn't overlook too quickly. All of those animal sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament, the people were very carefully told, you make sure to select animals in which there is no blemish, in which there is no spot, Leviticus, or rather Deuteronomy 17.1. And one more thing, God told them, don't you ever offer those sacrifices with leaven. I wonder if there's anything in that for you and me. Sure there is. Consider the blood of Christ. Was it offered with leaven? Leaven, perhaps from time immemorial, came to represent that which was sinful. It represented that which was not pleasing to God. That's why God said, don't ever offer those sacrifices with leaven. For instance, in Exodus 23, 18. And yet, with regard to Jesus, His blood had no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Our Savior was sinless. He had no sin. And therefore, in that marvelous offering of His blood, it was pure blood, innocent blood. It was not contaminated with sin. No wonder then the next picture is still appropriate without the shedding of blood. Couldn't be an animal's blood though. It needed to be the blood of the perfect one. And so it was that Jesus in sinless character offered Himself as a sacrifice shedding His blood. Lens number three. May we think for a moment about the attribute of conversion. What is involved in becoming a Christian? What's involved in pleasing God and living in a way that's satisfactory to Him? Is it not true that we shall find the blood of Christ all so pivotal in that? Let's develop it like this. In Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, these words, these powerful ideas are found. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by His blood. And I know that's mid-verse, but I'll stop there. Justified by His blood. Notice that's Christ's blood. You and I today, if we are justified at all, must be by virtue of His blood, for there is no other means to accomplish it. For that reason, look at Hebrews 13, 12. It was the fact the Lord died without the gates. He died in essence outside the city to produce sanctification for one and all. That blessing is highlighted as you and I note what's next. Aren't you so thankful that there was a tremendous change? A better covenant came before us. That old law of Moses again made commandment relative to animal sacrifices. You and I know well there was a burnt offering a sin offering, a trespass offering, a food offering, a peace offering. Those five major offerings were critical elements of the book of Leviticus. And yet as each one of them was described, many of them included the death of an animal. Sometimes it was a bullock. Sometimes it was a sheep. Sometimes it was a turtle dove. Sometimes it was a goat. Sometimes it was a ram. Point was, it involved the shedding of the blood of an animal. 
But as we arrive at Hebrews chapter 10, we learn this great truth. It was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. All of that blood that was shed from an animal, it typified the time and the moment in which the perfect sacrifice that would be given that would take away sins. The blood of those animals could never fully do it. Today, as you and I think about passages like Hebrews 9.14, it is there highlighted speaking of Christ. His blood can even cleanse the conscience. Think about that with me. Even your conscience, the innermost recesses of your thinking and being, that can be cleansed with Christ's blood. Isn't that effective? Isn't that great and powerful? Two more things on that slide then will be these. So many times the New Testament highlights the connection then in conversion to that, to that blood of Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Colossians 1 14 for instance, both of them highlight that it was His blood that makes possible the forgiveness of sins. Today then there is no forgiveness apart from that blood. And therefore, in conversion, we must make contact with that blood and apply it to ourselves. For those reasons, you'll notice the sweet statement of the conversion of Saul. You may remember this man, Saul. He was such an enemy to the cross. And yet, on the road to Damascus, a bright light shone about him, and he was told, Go into the city, and it'll told be what thou must do to be saved. Three days later... As he arrived at Damascus, Ananias came to him and said this in Acts twenty-two sixteen, And Saul, now why tarriest thou arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He needed to have his sins washed away. It's the connection to the blood of Christ that washes those sins away. No wonder that last statement is the great testimony of Revelation 1, 5. You and I have been washed from our sins in His blood. That says it all, doesn't it? Were it not for the blood of Christ, we would still be in our sins. Aren't you thankful for that blood? Oh, what power is in it. How appropriate it is to note the picture again. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. It's in baptism we contact that wonderful blood. And as we live faithfully, it continues to wash over us and cleanse us from sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. How about another lens? This time it's the lens of the church. Is there any impact in regard to the blood of Christ in connection to the church? Let's see. We understand how great it is to contemplate the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 2.13, as well as Colossians 1 verse 20, we read that in regard to the church, it was the blood of Christ that makes one. He has broken down the middle wall of partition, and we are made one in Christ. You might take note then, it's the blood that made it possible. It's the connection to the blood that makes that a reality. For that reason, there's a pivotal passage in Acts chapter 20. As Paul addressed the elders of the church at Ephesus, he specifically said to them, 
take heed to yourselves and to the church, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. Paul made the statement that the blood of Christ purchased the church. The church didn't just come into being happenstantially. It didn't just come about by coincidence. It wasn't founded based on the wisdom or intent of anybody of men. It had to be bought. It had to be purchased. And the purchasing price was the blood of Jesus. You and I assemble today, virtually 20 centuries this side of Calvary, and His blood purchased the Pippin Church of Christ just as certainly as it has all other faithful congregations through the ages. The blood of Christ bought it. May we never lose sight of just how great that purchase price was. I know that there are many organizations in the human family that have perhaps been bought at great sacrifice. Sometimes individuals have sacrificed much for something to come into being, but none of it compares to the church. None of it compares in magnitude and enormity to the purchasing price of the church. For that reason, let's extend that thought like this. Revelation 12, verse 11 Did you know that there's a surefire mechanism for defeating the devil? There, the inspired apostle John said that there are three things you and I must do as we appreciate the overwhelming opportunity to defeat the devil. One, the Word of God. You've got to make application of and utility of that, but two, the blood of the Lamb. There it is. Jesus is the Lamb. It is the necessity of His blood, the connection that it makes possible, that is an undefeatable matter for the devil. The devil can't defeat the blood of Christ. It's no wonder the devil tried his best to thwart the plans of God, but he failed. Jesus did come. He lived that life of perfection and shared forth the message of truth and ultimately went to the cross. The devil tried. But Jesus overcame every temptation. And as He shed His blood, that makes it such that, of course, you and I can be justified before the sight of God. Let's close that slide then like this. Every one of us as faithful Christians should rely again and again on that passage that reads, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Each and every day, as we live to the best of our capability, faithfully unto the Lord, we are promised His blood will continue to cleanse our sins. Now that, again, means we must be walking in the light. We can't be habitually sinning. We can't be purposefully ignoring the command of God. His blood doesn't cleanse us in that case. But each day, aren't we thankful for the efficacy and the power of that blood? Sure enough, as we close that slide, you and I are said that we can enter the holiest of holies by the blood of Christ. That takes us back to the Old Testament. In the tabernacle there was, of course, the holy place, and beyond the veil was the most holy place. And only the high priest in only one day of a year could enter the most holy place. But when Jesus died, that veil was rent from top to bottom. 
entrance in the holy place can now be enjoyed by one and all who will faithfully apply the blood of Christ. Are you washed in the blood? Am I washed in the blood? If you and I can't say we have been scripturally baptized and are living faithfully to that commandment and that directive, then we are not washed in the blood. We may have been at one time, but we have become faithless. And we've become those who now we are in need again of applying that blood as the Bible would command us. No wonder then the same picture is still appropriate. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. The shedding of Christ's blood. What about the next lens? The lens of worship. What you and I are doing at the very moment. We know that we've already sung these majestic songs of praise and adoration and we've prayed unto God. But of course we well know the blood is going to take center stage a little bit later in our worship this morning. Let's reflect on it for at least a moment. Preparing our mind for the place of that blood, it begins like this, the Lord's Supper. On the very night prior to His crucifixion, the Lord was assembled to celebrate the Passover with His disciples. And there was present unleavened bread. We learn quickly that that, of course, represented, as they took it in memorial, the very body of Jesus. And we are, of course, going to take the unleavened bread later this morning. And Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body. Paul quoted that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 and following. But following that, Jesus took the cup after supper and said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now the cup he was holding didn't literally have his blood. It's not as if he cut his finger and put His blood into it, it was, un, it was fruit of the vine. But it truly represented the blood of Jesus. When you and I take that fruit of the vine today, we must never take it inappropriately and take it in a way that does not discern the Lord's body because it represents His blood. Look at some of these thoughts. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and following, Paul made reference and observation of the fact that they in Corinth had chosen to take the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way. And when they did, he said, you eat and drink damnation to your soul. Even the blood of Christ then has a center position, a centerpiece in our, in our worship. Certainly as we take of that fruit of the vine a bit later in the service, may we think about the blood. That's what Paul tells us we must do. To reflect upon it, to appreciate what it made possible, and the blessing that's ours today to be washed by it. The blood of Jesus. That image that we have seen so far today several times, without the shedding of blood, is no remission. I would point out that in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, there's a reference to the communion reference to the Lord's Supper, and there it says that we're in communion by virtue of the blood. You and I are connected to God. You and I appreciate oneness with Him, through Jesus, of course. But that was made possible by the blood. Each of these lenses so far has certainly taken on a great consideration. 
Let me suggest another one. Could I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10? There, there's perhaps an avenue of the blood of Christ that may be a bit new to us, but it's certainly one that is very powerful. I've entitled it apostasy. We know what the word apostasy means. It means to leave the faith. It means to be in rebellion to it. And there's certainly something said in this passage about that very possibility. Beginning in verse number 26, it says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment... Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified at unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. That's a rather thunderous passage. And it has such a great implication for us, and may we all with seriousness consider this development. What description was put before us? Let me highlight a few of the words. First, verse 26, if we sin willfully, that adverb willfully means with choice, with predetermination. If you and I choose, though at one time Christians, faithful at that, but then to conduct ourselves in a deliberate, determined, ongoing, deliberate fashion, what does that verse go on to say? In sin, it says, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, you and I know the sacrifice for sins was the blood of Christ. Jesus is not going to force us to accept and be blessed by the benefits of His blood. We've got to want it. He won't pour His blood upon us if you and I do not want to be poured by it. To those who sin willfully, they have said to Him, We're not interested any longer in your sacrifice. We don't want the blessing of your blood. Let's read on. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. If you and I choose to sin willfully, we are trampling right over the blood of Christ. We are saying to Him, we're not interested in what this blood did or can do. We don't want it anymore. Look again at how the verse began, of how much sore punishment. How much worse will it be for us on the day of judgment to be in that position? To be in that circumstance, having walked deliberately over the blood of Christ. That verse says that there were those doing it in the days of the Hebrews, and certainly you and I can still do it today. Oh, how great is the nature of Christ's blood. The picture yet again. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. We've looked at all these verses this morning and it's the one that was the lesson text I'd like to use to bring us full circle. That text in Revelation 13 said that that blood was shed before the world began. In the great mind of God, even before Jesus ever came, there was already a realization the blood's going to have to be shed. The human family cannot be saved without it. And God planned for it to be so. 
May we never forget the love of God. He loved us that much. Even before He ever created this earth, He knew that His Son was going to have to die. And He knew that He would have to shed blood. And He knew that it would be a gruesome death. And He knew it would be excruciating and painful. And yet, the Son came and did it anyway. Because He loved us enough, He wanted us to be saved. The closing part of our lesson then is this. We have looked at the blood of Christ through these lenses. The lens of prophecy. How that even years before it happened, He told us it was going to be. Through that lens that was type and conversion. Highlighting the what must occur in you and me if we're to become a Christian. The last three, the church, worship, and apostasy. I hope we've each reflected upon the nature of that blood and have thought one more time that without the shedding of blood is no remission. If there's anybody in this audience today that needs to come down this aisle, I hope you'll do it at once. I hope as you do that you'll recognize it is the call of the gospel and it's the love of Christ and the blood shed at the cross. It's not merely an invitation on the part of anybody here. It's an invitation from heaven, an invitation from the Son of God, an invitation that says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 and following. The plan of salvation then in contacting that blood is one must believe with all of his or her heart that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. And yet that belief prompts one to do what the Messiah has taught. Repent of sins. Turn aside from them. Don't live in them anymore. Make a determined consideration with confidence that through the power of Christ I can overcome this. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And therefore, if we are apart from Him, it's not because He left, it's because we did. After that repentance, make a confession of Christ, that you do believe with all of your heart He is the Son of God, and at that point you'll be immersed into Christ in baptism. There's where His blood covers you. You can come out of that watery grave free from sin. You've been forgiven of it. It is no longer attached to you in guilt. At that point, you start living the Christian life. It's the point of commencement. If you live faithfully until death, heaven will be yours. But if you stumble and fall, if you've reached a point in life when, though at one time you knew about the conviction of that gospel and the power of the blood of Christ was often on your mind, maybe that time is a distant memory. Maybe today you aren't faithful and you know it and others know it. Why not do something about it? Jesus offers, but He won't make you come. He invites, He implores, He urges, He warns, but He leaves the decision to you and me. That second law of pardon reads like this. 1 John 1.8 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. If you'll repent of them and confess, He's promised to forgive you, And today, if we could make note of that and pray on your behalf to God, we'd be honored to do it. In fact, we'd love to do it. But again, the decision is yours. 
If anyone in the audience would wish to come today and approach again to the blood of Christ, thankful for what it can do in your life, we would urge you to come and invite you now while together we stand and while we sing.